When you think about Greek life, Christian faith might be the absolute last thing that comes to mind. But we not only believe that it's possible to be Greek and Christian, but also that it's the best way to experience Greek life and grow your faith. We have real, honest conversations about how to approach Greek life from a Christian perspective, including things like recruiting and pledging, drinking and drugs, sex and dating, leadership and philanthropy, and much more. This podcast is by Greeks and for Greeks. Our hosts and guests are all members of fraternities and sororities who collectively have decades worth of experience living out their faith in Greek life. Welcome to the Greek and Christian Podcast. Hey everyone, it is great to be back for another episode of the Greek and Christian Podcast. Really pumped to have my friend John with me. Hey John, what's up? What's going on, Allison? You doing all right? You know, I'm doing pretty good. I went for a run outside today. That was so nice. It's cooled down a little bit here in Salt Lake City. And uh, yeah, I feel like it's been a good week so far. How about for you? Yeah, getting along all right. You know, trying to figure out life and social distancing and the new world that we live in and everything. But uh, one day at a time. You know? Oh, that's right. That's right. Well, you know what? And it, now that you say that, I, will, I do want to say to our audience, we're praying for you guys. Jesus yes. has you. I've been seeing news reports <laughs> coming out of Greek houses being quarantined because of COVID outbreaks. And so just want you guys yeah. to know we're here with you. We see you. Uh, we are praying for you and God's got you. So you'll yeah. get through this. Yes. <laughs> we'll all learn from it. Uh, come Lord Jesus. <laughs> help us. Help us through it. There you go. That's right. Well, we are in uh, the second episode of our new season on Abolish or Advocate. John, you want to catch our audience up a bit and kind of what yep. we're doing, where we're heading? Yep. So we are, like Allison said, in the midst of a series uh, which we're entitling Advocate or Abolish Greek Life. You know, just a little light topic, uh, but uh, it is a popular hashtag movement right now that's trending, uh, hashtag Abolish Greek Life. Um, and so we're just asking the question, hey, how should we as Christians in the Greek system respond to calls to abolish Greek life? If you listen to the last episode, the first episode, um, there have been over the years a number of calls to abolish Greek life. This isn't a, a unique experience. Um, many times these calls have come up because of the brokenness that we see in the system, some of these patterns that we see. And so uh, the last episode was just a primary overview of, you know, the topic, why people advocate for Greek life and why people also call to abolish Greek life. And just as a point of reminder, uh, we sort of finished with this idea that we as Christians should be uh, Micah 6-8 type people, you know, people who seek justice, love mercy, and walk humbly with our God. In this particular episode, we're going to zoom in to the topic of hand, which is race and racism within uh, the Greek system. John, I am really looking forward to this because I think especially for us, right, we mentioned before, John and I are both white people, um, and we are both part of predominantly white Greek organizations, so yep. NPC sorority, IFC fraternity, um, and so that's the background we come from, and, you know, a lot of my development in thinking about you know, I am a white person. And what does that mean? Um, it's been a really hard journey, but also a really beautiful journey. And I've learned a lot of the, about how God did create me as a white woman. And what does that mean? Um, and how, what does that mean in the context of my sorority? So I'm excited for this conversation. Um, 
part of what I've been really thinking a lot about, John, is this, you know, we all have a big brother, a big sister when we're part of Greek life. Um, And one thing I've been thinking about a a lot is, John, you and I are kind of like the honorary big bro and big sis (laughs) to our audience. Um, That's what I've been thinking about because one of the things I love most about having a big sister, and I think our audience can agree, is that when you have a really good big they help their littles navigate all of the good things and the hard things of Greek life. And, yeah. you know, they're able to do that because they have, they've gone down the road before us. They've been through it. And that's like you and I, John, like we've been thinking about these issues of racism, of ethnicity through a biblical lens for several years now. And that yeah. doesn't, we are not experts by any mean, means, but we've been wrestling with it. And part of you know, our role as a big is that we want to help our littles grow and develop because we care about them. Um, that's what I hope for as we, you know, host our audience yeah. is that because we care about you as audience members, because we care oh. about you as our honorary little bros and little sisters, we want to kind of mentor you through these hard conversations because it's important. And we want to see you grow oh. and develop and become more of who Jesus has called you to be. So on yeah. that note, let's get into it, John. You said we're going to explore kind of the, the biblical background or how yeah. God uh, sees ethnicity and race yes. and where is he at in this conversation. Yeah, yeah. So let's go back uh, to the beginning, literally uh, in the beginning, first page of the Bible, Genesis 1, you have God uh, bringing everything into being. You know, he takes what was wild and waste, what was formless and empty, uh, and he brings forth, you know, uh, the water, sky, land, trees. Uh, He fills it up with fish and animals and people. Everything up until that point had been good. And so everything has been good in creation up until uh, this point we get to in Genesis 2. God creates man. He creates Adam out of the ground. Uh, And then he acknowledges it's not good for man to be alone. And it's in response to this that God creates an other, uh, another human being, a female, Eve, that is different in form, but not in value. You know, different in, she is a different expression of humanity, but she is of equal significance in value that both male and female are created in the image of God. Both of us reflect God's goodness uh, in the world. And both of them were unified under God. Then enter Genesis 3. And where man did not want to be like God, but wanted to be God. You know, we wanted to redefine good and evil on our own terms. We wanted to make the rules for our life. I wanted to define what's good and what isn't good. And what's interesting that happens, going back to the differences, when people redefine, when people want to be God and we redefine the rules, those differences instantly become divisions between us and God and between people in people. So what you see in Genesis 3, you know, immediately we see division between God and people. You know, he comes down and he's like, what have you done? Who have you, who have you been listening to? Um, and then what does Adam do? He turns rights around and blames the one. He's like, hey, it's that woman you put me here with. It's her fault, you know? And then Eve turns around and she blames the serpent. She was like, well, it's this, you know, snake that uh, is with us in creation. And so you have this blame shifting already going on and all these different dynamics. And so right out of the get-go, I mean, we're three 
pages in into Genesis 3, and we see what happens is sin, brokenness, when people want to define what's right and wrong for themselves, differences become divisions. Mm. And we see that today all the time. I mean, that is the core is that when we see an other, whatever that other is, we typically like to benefit me and mine versus you and yours. I think out of that comes lots of some of the divisions uh, that we see in our society today. So when I redefine the rules in favor of me and my gender, you get sexism. Mm -hmm. When I redefine the rules in my favor between me and my community, you get classism. When it's me and my country, you get nationalism. And when Mm -hmm. it's me and my race, you get racism. And you see it all throughout biblical history and into modern history. Wherever there are differences, we just tend to turn differences into divisions. Hmm. That's a good word, John. I think that distinction is really important that you make of like, God created differences, right? Like those differences, that diversity is really good. But humanity was the one who created divisions out of our need for control, our need to be like God our need to have power. Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. And you see, even God himself is diverse. You know, if you fast forward to the New Testament concept of the Trinity, right? Mm. God is three, but he is one. You know, that God is unified. He is one, unified. But Mm -hmm. there are three different expressions of who God is in the sense of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And that, honestly, as we are created in His image and reflections of Him, it only makes sense that we would also be diverse, right? That male and female are these two equal uh, reflections and expressions of humanity, you Mm -hmm. know? And that comes out in our ethnicity and all these different uh, differences, you know, that are good, but we just, we twist them, you know, we get a hold of them. Right. God created them to be good. We're the ones who twisted them. There you go. You got it. So let's fast forward. That's like way back at the beginning. Let's fast forward all the way to modern history. Um, Pre the year 1400, around the 1400s, national and tribal identity is what defined ethnicity, right? We didn't have these ideas of race that came into play. There wasn't you know, white and Asian or black or these generic groupings uh, that we've created. It was, you have the Scottish and you have the, you know, uh, Great Britain and Irish and Polish and Russian and Chinese and South African and uh, Brazilian, you know, those are what defined um, the ethnicities. Then you enter into the 1400s and you get the idea of imperialism, right? All of a sudden, some of these European nations started exploring the world um, and they started entering into all these other countries and starting conquering some of these nations and setting up little outposts. This is the colonization of the world started to happen. And as those European nations got exposed to these other countries, uh, you end up having this idea of race emerge. Humanity ends up drawing these artificial groupings along different ethnic groups based off of sort of superficial physical traits, right? Skin color, body type, Mm -hmm. eye shape. Uh, And so we are the ones that created this idea of race. And then, right, what do I do when I want to act like God? 
uh, I want to write the rules to benefit me and mine. And so one of the ways that this happened, that we see in modern history really happening, is this idea of a white race coming into play as opposed to a black race, you know, from the African nations. And it's these European, and this is where the concept of, if you've ever heard of quote unquote white supremacy come into play. And it's this belief that there are superior races, you know, that me and my ethnicity and my race are better than other races, you know, and even more egregious and evil than that is this idea that God had somehow created races uh, to be in this hierarchical structure, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that's important to understand because, you know, sometimes I think we hear white supremacy and we just imagine like the Ku Klux Klan, you know, people in white hoods and burning crosses. And yes, that is an expression of that. Uh, but at its core, it's just saying, hey, I want to benefit me and mine over you and yours. Mm -hmm. I think me and mine deserve uh, this land, these resources, this place, you know, or you uh, to benefit us. And what do you get coming out of that? Slavery, right? And the transatlantic slave trade. And that that's what initially drove um, that idea um, or that institution of slavery Mm -hmm. with this idea of white supremacy. And I know if you're with us right here, I'll pause. Uh, We want to give you some of this historical context so that you can see how the historical narrative ends up influencing our Greek chapters today. Yes, it's all going to make sense. (laughs) Because you're right. I mean, and we talked about this, touched on this a little briefly before, but we have to understand the history of where this all comes from so that we can fix it today so that we can invite God in to fix these broken systems and structures, beliefs, ideas uh, that we've created. So John, it was interesting. I was at the um, African-American History Museum in DC um, about a year and a half ago. um, And it was, I mean, it's amazing. If you ever get a chance to go, you should go. It's just, it's beautiful. It's somber and sad, but also the celebration um, of Black history. And so they start with the transatlantic slave trade and how that came about. And I remember one of the exhibits was talking about how, you know, prior really to the 1400s, there was no concept of black or white. And it really came about, like you said, in order to justify slavery. So grouping one people into one camp to benefit them, um, and then grouping another people into another camp to oppress them. Um, And so it's important to know that, that you know, while maybe today we see white supremacy as these isolated events, like you said, the Ku Klux Klan, et cetera, it's also these structures that have been around forever that continue to influence our society today and benefit people with light skin um, and disadvantage people with dark skin. And we're not saying this to shame anybody, right? Remember, we're your big bro. We're your yeah. big sis. We've yeah. been investigating this. And so we're saying this because we need to recognize that this has been part of our history and it influences us today, but that there is hope for us um, that God wants to redeem uh, these systems and structures and us. Yeah, uh, it, it is heavy stuff. Yeah. Uh, but it, hey, this is a history lesson. Like these are facts. Right. Uh, this is just, hey, this is the history of our world and it's written into our constitution and right. like the bedrock. These are some of the beliefs that were at, at play. And Allison, I think you can help catch us up. So 
transatlantic slave trade uh, coming into American history now. Yes. Yep. So America is born, right? 1700s. Here we are. Um, and what happens is, right, we had slavery happening over in Europe, and now it's transported over into the Americas at the beginning of our nation, right? The beginnings of our nation. Um, and so these racial divisions that, remember, God created ethnicity, God created culture, he created differences. We as human beings created the divisions, mm -hmm. right? To, that, that oppress some, benefit others. And so those divisions carried over into America from Europe. Um, and at the same time that America is beginning, right, the 1700s, we're also seeing some of the first universities emerging. The first universities, right? We think of Harvard, we think of Yale. Those were actually started as divinity schools. They were started as, uh, they were religious in nature. Um, and education was really kind of more of this rote memorization. You memorize the content, that's that. Um, and so then we see the first fraternal organization starting. So we've got Phi Beta Kappa, the first Greek organization in 1776. Um, and these organizations start emerging uh, because of the purpose of socializing, right? Creating these social groups and also critical thought. So there was this longing among university men to go beyond just memorizing information and actually critically thinking about it. So it's really kind of a cool beginning of where fraternity started. Um, but this is really important for us to point out. Universities from their founding were first limited to white men, white Protestant men, and then white women, yet slavery, right? The Emancipation Proclamation, 1865, Civil War ends. Which is a, which is a, a hundred years yeah. <laughs> after Phi Beta Kappa started, right? right? So you have a hundred years where it's primarily um, only white men, white women come in there, sororities pop up, but for a hundred years, hey, it's only white folk. Exactly, so when the Civil War ends, you, know, you have African-Americans who are now free or becoming free um, and they're seeking education. Um, but our universities often remained barred to black students. Um, and so you see the emergence of historically black colleges and universities. We have Howard, um, several others that are founded to educate black men and women. Um, and so because these universities were excluding the black community, by its nature, our fraternities and sororities were exclusionary, whether they had policies excluding people of color or people of different religions or not. Um, so from yeah. our beginnings, we were naturally exclusionary. And then once universities began to become more integrated, our fraternities and sororities faced a choice. And many of our fraternities and sororities had explicit exclusionary policies um, in their constitution and their bylaws prohibiting um, non-Protestant people of color from joining uh, Greek letter organizations. Yeah. So that's where we see the, the um, ethnic specific fraternities and sororities come into being. We have Alpha Phi Alpha, which came into being in 1906 at Cornell, right? Cornell yeah. was a white institution that integrated. And we see these courageous men say, we need a place where we can come together as black men and grow in our development and have a place where we can be together and support one another. Yeah. Um, and then you see 
the rest of the Divine Nine organizations emerge over the next 20 years. Um, and so today they're known as NPHC or the National Panhellenic Council. Um, and there's many amazing people who are alumni of these Black Greek organizations. So like you have Martin Luther King Jr., who's an Alpha Phi Alpha. So in addition to the historically Black fraternities and sororities, we see the emergence of what we call the multicultural Greek chapters. So there's the MGC Multicultural Greek Council. Um, and so we have NALFA, which is the National Association of Latin X Fraternal Organizations, and then NAPA, the National Asia Pacific Islander. There are Panhellenic yeah. and fraternal organizations um, that that they support specific cultural and ethnic groups yeah. um, through membership in those organizations. So all of these organizations begin to emerge, these ethnic-specific fraternities and sororities or multi multicultural Greek organizations, because there is not a place for them in the historically white fraternities and sororities, or, or rather the white fraternities and sororities were not making a place yeah. for them. Yeah. Uh, and so it's not until the 1960s that we see the first people of color being able to join historically white fraternities and sororities. So it's in the 1960s that the first black man is uh, actually pledged and initiated into a historically white fraternity. Which a couple of things to note there. I mean, uh, I think it's important to note the differences by which they were created, right? Right. That the historically black fraternities and sororities were created not because that they were trying to be exclusive, but mm -mm. because they were trying to be inclusive. They That's were right. trying to create a space for their, you know, brothers and sisters and other people of color to have the same camaraderie, to have the same sense of solidarity, to have the same opportunities for critical thinking and mm -hmm. uh, socializing with one another. I mean, you think about, you know, put yourselves, walk a mile in someone else's shoes. What would it be like if you showed up on campus for freshman orientation, uh, and you did not have housing, you did not have access to uh, food services, you did not have access to any social clubs or to the gym to work out or any of sorts of those things. I mean, yeah, you're in, you're a student, but are you really a student, you know? Uh, right. And so that's why these organizations came together for inclusion not exclusion, mm -hmm. which you cannot say that with historical integrity about our historically white fraternities and sororities. If we're just being honest, let's just call it for what it is. <laughs> they yep. were not created to be inclusive. They were created to be exclusive and to the point where they resisted change and integration, even when it was possible. Uh, all of which brings up the question, right, of... <laughs> What is what do you what do you do with all of this? What does God think about race and racism? You know, what does the Bible have to say? And how again are we as Christians in in the Greek system supposed to respond to this history that we have? So on that note, we're gonna take a quick break. So we have we have a quick announcement for you, and then we're gonna get back into it. We're two episodes into our series on abolish or advocate for Greek life. And I bet that there's tons of questions that might be floating in your mind right now. Um, and so we have dedicated the final episode in this series to a Q&A. 
uh, basically where any question is fair game and John and I will do our best to have a real and authentic dialogue about this issue. So we have a Google form linked in the show notes. We want you to go and submit your questions. Again, anything is fair game. Maybe you want to know more about what the Bible has to say about ethnicity. Maybe you want more practical tips on how to challenge racist systems and structures in your Greek chapter. Again, any question is fair game. So make sure you go to that Google form and submit your question today. All right, so we're back at it, right? And we just talked through you know, the history, the history of race and society in about a, you know, 10 minute time period. So maybe you're feeling like you're drinking from a fire hose, but again, we're your big bro. We're your big sis. And we do this because we love you and we care about you and we care about your development. And we need to understand these things if we care about the future of Greek life. And if we, we care about the future of our communities. And so John, you raised a question about, well, what do we do with all this, right? Like God created differences we created the divisions as yeah. humans. And so wh- where is God in this? Like, is God going to fix it? Can he fix it for us? Yes. Yes. Yeah, so we wanted to give you um, essentially four points, you know, biblical points to uh, what God thinks about race uh, and some of the Christian response to racism, right? Now, I think on a general scale, we could all say, yes, racism is wrong. You should not be a racist, you know? Um, but do we know uh, the biblical reasons behind that? Uh, that? Like if somebody was to tell you, hey, why does the Bible say racism is wrong, which it does, what would you point to? What passage would you go to? And I think that's where we want to give you a few, you know, uh, places that you can go to and say, you know, printed in ink, here it is, <laughs> the reasons uh, why this is detrimental uh, and how we can also be advocates uh, for um, diversity and inclusion and in breaking down some of these divisions that we as people have instituted. So, we ready? Number one, uh, the image of God. I already alluded to it in Genesis 1, uh, but you have Genesis 1, 26 through 27, God created male and female in his image, right? And the image of God is this idea that, you know, we were meant to reflect God's character and who who he is and his goodness. And a derivative of that is that by nature of being a human being, regardless of your ethnicity, regardless of your nationality, your gender, your physical or mental capabilities, you are of infinite worth to the creator of the universe. Mm. And anything that would undermine that value is an assault, not only against humanity in that particular person or that particular group of people, but also God himself. When, when I, uh, again, uh, as a person, think that me and mine are somehow better than you and yours, you know, if that's uh, ethnicity or gender or whatever it is, I'm not only devaluing that person, but I'm devaluing the person that that person reflects. And that's God, you know, that I'm devaluing the image of God in them. So image of God, number one in Genesis is a reason why, you know what, we cannot say Um, there's a basis for these divisions. Number two would be the idea of loving your neighbor, 
right? Uh, so uh, you can think through all the Old Testament, you know, all the uh, biblical laws we get, but particularly in Jesus's time, you know, he stopped by one of these religious leaders and he's asked, hey, Jesus, what is the one greatest commandment? And Jesus not only gives him one, but two <laughs> greatest commandments. One is love God with all your heart, soul, and mind and strength. And the second he says is just like it to love your neighbor as mm -hmm. yourself. And it's interesting to note that he only asked, he's only asked for one, but he intrinsically ties those two things together, that your love of God and your love of other people are going to be reflective of one another. Not only in one sense is that our calling as Christians to love other people as Jesus loved us, right? As God loved us, but also that our love of people is a reflection of our love of God. <laughs> and if we aren't, when we look at people of other ethnicities and races, if we aren't ascribing to them the same uh, love and care and access to resources and all the same things that me and mine have access to, then that is undermining our love for our neighbor. And it's a very poor reflection of, of our love of God, because that's not how God loves us. Right. So we got, right. We're creating the image of God. We're called to love our neighbor. And then third, we have the gospel of grace, right? So we know that God himself came into our mess, right? He came here in human form and he showed the way to live. And Jesus died on the cross. He died for the sins, not just our individual sins, but the sins of the whole world. And he rose from the dead, proving that not only did he die to all those sins, but he was able to defeat them and yeah. that we have access to new life. So, right, our salvation, our restoration to relationship with God is not based on morality, right? Oh. What we do, if we do the good things or not, if we don't do the bad things, whatever those good and bad things are, yeah. uh, which is, can be very subjective depending on who you talk to. And it's not dependent on our identity, right? It's not dependent on, you know, if we're what our ethnicity is, if we're American, if we're, you know, Latin American, right? It's it's dependent on Jesus. So, right, John 3.16 is, for God so loved the entire world that he gave his only son. Often we think of that very personally, but it's the whole world. Jesus came to the whole world, not one people group, but all people groups in the entire world. So your race, your culture, where you come from, your socioeconomic background, that does not make you any more or less lovable. Like that's where our ancestors got it twisted, right? Yeah. When we, when you said again, like God created differences, we created divisions. Our ancestors got it twisted, right? They said, well, these divisions mean I'm more lovable and my people are more lovable than yours. Yeah. Uh, and that is, that is flat out a lie. Jesus thought that everybody was worth dying for, um, including the people who are different from us, from you and yours. And so we see this immediately uh, come to light in the early church. So in Acts chapter two, which is the very beginning of the church, we see Peter, he's preaching. And he is preaching to this massive crowd and this crazy thing happens. It says that the Holy Spirit comes and now all these people can hear and understand one another and 
Peter who's preaching, yet they are from different cultures and ethnicities. It says it lists all these different nations that people are from who are gathering in the crowd to hear Peter speak. And they're all speaking different language from one another, yet they can hear and understand one another, and they can hear and understand the word of God through Peter. And so God makes it very clear that his community of people come from different nations, different languages, and those all are, all are good and beautiful. And it's through his power that he's able to bring unity and speak to each of those people in their culture and heart language. Yeah. Um, and then we see in the book of Ephesians, the big division that's happening in Paul's time is between the Jewish people and Gentiles, basically people who are, are not Jewish. And these were definitely divisions along ethnic and religious lines. Yep. So at this time, only Jewish people were allowed to worship in the temple. Um, there was this literal wall between the outer courts where the Gentiles, the non-Jewish people were allowed to be, and then the inner courts where the Jewish people were allowed. And this division, like you said, it was man-made. God, when he talked about forming the temple in the Old Testament, that division did not exist. There was just this innermost place where the priests were allowed to be, and then everybody else could hang out and be at the temple. Whereas now, through the ages, there's all these different walls separating different people from each other in the temple, and the Gentiles are, are on the furthest place out. And so Paul, in his preaching to the Ephesians, he says this, he says, for he himself is our peace, who has made the two groups one and has destroyed the barrier, the dividing wall of hostility, by setting aside in his flesh the law with its commands and regulations. His purpose was to create in himself one new humanity out of the two, thus making peace, and in one body to reconcile both of them to God through the cross. So what Paul is getting at here is that Jesus put an end to these dividing walls. Jesus didn't end the differences through his death on the cross. Yeah. Those differences matter. You are still a Gentile. You are still Jewish. You are still African-American with parents who came from Kenya. You are still a white American who had immigrant parents who came from Ireland. Right? Those differences still matter, yet those divisions that keep people apart from one another, who oppress one group and uplift another, Jesus died and ended those divisions. And Paul is saying that we are part of a new humanity together, that we are one body. And I like what you said, John, about loving your neighbor, that we are called to love one another and to love God, not just love the people who are like us, but if we really call ourselves Christians, that means we are part of a body with all the other believers and they are ours now. We belong to them yeah. and they belong to us. Yeah. Which you see, I mean, that's where the early church was just seemed really confusing <laughs> to somebody on the outside, right? Because outside society was, was separated along these national lines, these cultural lines, these religious lines. And yet you have this small little group of people who follow this guy named Jesus, who are from all different nationalities and are from all different ethnicities and speak all different languages. And so you see the early church transcending all of these uh, dividing lines and are becoming unified into mm. one, right? Mm. So uh, that's the third point, right? We got the image of God, uh, the love of neighbor, the gospel of grace. And then the fourth one is the new creation. So if we're fast forwarding all the way to the end of the Bible and we get into Revelation, we see the full um, 
you know, a culmination of what the church is eventually supposed to be, right? From Acts all the way to the new creation. And so when Jesus comes back uh, and establishes the things that, uh, the way that he intends them to be, uh, and he reestablishes heaven on earth as it was intended to be, we see this unified but diverse group of people worshiping Jesus. And then so you get passages in like Revelation uh, 7, 9 that says, after I looked, there before me was a great multitude that no one could count from every nation, tribe, people, and language standing before the throne and before the Lamb. Hmm. And I think you mentioned it, uh, Allison, but I think it bears repeating that the new creation, when God has his way and reinstitute what's right and wrong, and he is God and we are not, we exist under him, that new creation does not erase our differences. It redeems them. It Mm -hmm. unifies them under Jesus. You know, (laughs) in other words, God is not colorblind. (laughs) The Bible is not colorblind. You know, sometimes I hear like the ideal is, well, we shouldn't see color, right? I don't see color. I see everybody is equal. And while that may prevent you from having certain prejudices or something on a personal level, it also blinds us to some of the most beautiful things about us and in the things that God has created in us. And these ethnic differences and cultural differences and our unique languages, these are all really good and beautiful things that God affirms. Again, he's not erasing the differences. He's erasing the divisions and he's uh, redeeming all of these and making them one under him. Mm -hmm. Which bears the question, you know, what do we do from here? Uh, So knowing this, knowing some of this history, uh, both biblically and historically, modern history and everything, uh, what should be our response in the Greek system now? Yeah, so we've we've been talking a lot about Micah 6.8, right? That God says, I I don't require all this crazy stuff from you. I I don't really need your stuff. What I want is you. I want you to act justly, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with me. Um, and so, right, let, let's think of it through that lens again. So first off, we just need to approach this conversation with humility, right? With humility, self-reflection, and confession. So that gets into, right, Jesus did save us both individually and communally, right? It's this both and. And so that piece is really thinking through, well, what how can I present myself to God and ask him to show me what are, what are the biases I carry? What are the things that are preventing me, you know, from really looking at the world through his eyes and, and where are there places where maybe I am seeing people like, this is about me and mine, about elevating me, elevating mine. And those are just those other people over there asking God to help us see that um, in ourselves. I, I want to point this out that you know, I think a lot, especially in people, brothers and sisters who are white, it's hard for us to get into that space of confession because often the only messages we hear about, about white ethnicity is negativity, is really mm-hmm. negative. And so it's hard for us to go into that place of confession because we don't want to experience more shame. It's, it's difficult, but I want to encourage you that on in confession on the other side of that is hope and restoration. And so, you know, part of 
for me personally, is just this discipline of coming to God and saying like, God, I know that I have biases that I hold and I need you to help me see them. I need you to help me see them. Um, and when I see them to confess them um, and trust that God is going to help me repent and turn away from that um, and be restored. Um, so that that's the first piece that we can participate in together. And then the second piece is, you know, to communally respond as well. Um, and we've, we've kind of been doing this right now, John, of, you know, we've been recognizing these racist paths or these racist underpinnings in our society and where this is coming from. Um, and we're able to acknowledge that without defensiveness, right? Or without just ignoring it and being blind to it. And I think that act justly, love, mercy, walk humbly, part of being a follower of Jesus in humility is being able to look back and say, this is where we come from. This is what's still broken now. And I can see that and confess that. And so communally, you know, we've seen that happen. We've seen actually several national organizations like Delta Gamma, 80 Pi, Beta, they've, they've looked back on their racist histories. And that is part of taking steps towards racial justice. And so I think recognizing our past helps us to own our sin collectively and take steps toward repentance and long lasting change. And that's challenging, right? Because like yeah. we weren't there in the 1400s, like yeah. we we weren't there for it. Yeah, this is part of the the burden that our community has carried into the into the future and part of that is we need to own that. Yeah. You know, with humility. Yeah. To that end, it's made me think of, as I've been thinking about this and, and ruminating, um, because I, I feel that too, you know, personally, I could say, well, I didn't, I, I wasn't back there when my fraternity and sorority was created. You know, I did not write those exclusionary bylaws. I, uh, maybe I have not, I don't tell racist jokes. Maybe I have not suggested, suggested a racist theme party, you know, that my chapter may have hosted in the past or any of those sorts of things. And so you say, well, I didn't do it. So why do I have like, what should I do about this now? You know, like, why am I responsible? Why are you looking at me like I'm responsible for it? And to that end, I would say, think of it this way, of this concept of you've inherited both benefits and the burdens of your fraternity and sorority by becoming a member. So for example, uh, simply by uh, becoming a member uh, of your fraternity or sorority, you instantly inherited a lot of benefits. For example, a house. If your chapter has a fraternity and sorority house, chances are you did not pay for that house. It was probably paid for by the alumni, but you are responsible for taking care of that house now. Your dues go to pay for it. You're responsible for keeping it up and keeping it clean and not <laughs> destroying it, uh, which is always a threat in fraternity houses. Um, and I think there's many benefits that we've uh, experienced, you know, like that. Our chapter's reputation, you know, uh, the philanthropy that your chapter has set up. Chances are, unless you founded uh, your chapter, you didn't set up that philanthropy. You didn't give those thousands of dollars that your chapter has given in the past or those service hours. Yet you get to benefit from that reputation and from that past. You get to benefit and enjoy the house in the exact same way. There are also burdens that come with our membership. You may personally not have created a culture or uh, 
exclusionary bylaws, you know, a culture of racism in your chapter. You may not have voted down a person of color, but by simply becoming a member, you have inherited the past of your chapter. And just like your house, even though you didn't build it, you're now responsible for taking care of it. And so I think the invitation for us is to do that. How are we going to take care of this problem of racism in our chapters? And I think you can do it in a lot of different ways, you know, personally, uh, on a personal level, which Allison just talks about and your beliefs and your views and your heart posture uh, towards people uh, that are different from you. But I think you can also do it, you know, structurally speaking. Think about uh, how you do recruitment, you know. Uh, the benefit is that all of our chapters are democratic in nature, you know, so you have a vote, you have a say, you have influence on how things go. How can I take part in what God is doing in the world to break down some of these divisions? And one of the ways you can do that as a Christian and what is great practice for the rest of the world, right, is doing it in your fraternity and sorority right now to be a Micah 6-8 person, a person of justice and mercy and humility. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's a good word. And we're going to get a little bit more practical in our next episode. We're going to um, invite on a guest who's really thought a lot about, um, yeah, how to how to deal with racism and and within the Greek system and within our own hearts. To wrap up today, we do have a few next steps for you. We're going to put links to these um, in our show notes, but there's one really great video and it's called Ethnicity Matters. And we're going to link to it. It's from InterVarsity. It's called Ethnicity Matters. Um, and we recommend watch it, but watch it with a few of your brothers or sisters. And there's a discussion guide that comes with it too. And so you can have a really great discussion about it. Um, so I recommend watching that. Uh, the next resource that we recommend is a book. It's called Beyond Colorblind. It's by Sarah Shen. And it really talks about how ethnicity matters to God in a really beautiful and holistic way. So one of the important steps on my journey in this, John, has been, one, understanding my ethnicity as a white woman. And specifically, like, I come from a Hungarian immigrant background. Um, and so unpacking that more. Um, but understanding my ethnic background and heritage and allowing God to show me, sure, what is broken about that, but what is beautiful as well. And, and God coming in and redeeming all of who I am. So we'll have more uh, for you all next week. We're going to keep diving into this conversation. Again, as your big brother, your big sister, we care about you. And that's why we're having these hard conversations because we care about you. Um, and really, it's our invitation as followers of Jesus. If we really care about our community and the body of Christ, then we would care about these issues. So, Believe it. Cool. Yeah. See you next time.